We're beginning a new series today, a four-part series on the theme, A Sabbath Rest for the People of God. Uh, As we heard uh, earlier in the service from that reading, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Uh, This is a call we need to hear today in our frantic, anxious, flat-out world. Uh, It's an interesting coincidence that uh, today uh, is a long weekend. That's why a number of us are away. Uh, But what is it that we are celebrating this weekend? Why do we have a public holiday tomorrow? Uh, It's Labor Day. It's a day that we uh, celebrate the rights of workers and uh, the importance of not working flat out, non-stop, seven days a week, 12 hours a day, uh, but acknowledging that uh, human beings need to have time to rest. And uh, we we tend to credit the labour movement for things like the uh, 40-hour week and the the weekend, Uh, but really underneath that movement, the basis of that movement was the, uh, the Christian a Judeo-Christian ethic that had, was pervaded, that pervaded uh, Western culture uh, that acknowledged both that human beings are made in the image of God and uh, so uh, workers should not be exploited. Uh, every human being needs to have that time to rest so they can live with uh, dignity uh, as image bearers of God. Uh, but also the uh, this principle of the Sabbath, uh, that there's a time for work and there's a time for uh, for rest and a time for recreation uh, and uh, a quality of life. Uh, so we we actually have uh, the Sabbath command in the Bible to thank for our long weekend that we tend to take for granted. Something I hear often when I ask someone how they're going is, I'm busy, I'm too busy. Uh, Something else I hear people say when sometimes when they ask me how I'm going is, are you busy or you must be busy? Busyness and the exhaustion that comes with it seems to be a characteristic of life in the 21st century. A a recent article on a secular business news and advice website uh, acknowledged this. Uh, Here's what it says. We are living in an epidemic of urgency and busyness. Unless we are flat out and working ridiculous hours, we are judged. And we often judge ourselves as lazy or unproductive. People constantly say they are tired, exhausted and overwhelmed. They can't keep up with the pressures of modern day living. It's like we are always on and have no idea how to hit the off switch. We don't even know that there is one. Then it gives some statistics. It says in Australia we work 3.2 billion hours a year in unpaid overtime. We have 134 million days of accrued annual leave and 3.8 million of us don't take lunch breaks. 7.4 million Australians don't get enough sleep. We seem to have become rest resistant. We are addicted to being busy And it's preventing us from getting the rest we need to perform our best. So that's a secular point of view uh, from a business perspective. Busyness is an epidemic. But it's not 
only a problem for modern people, busyness can also be a status symbol. We think busyness equals productivity and productivity equals self-worth. So telling someone you're busy can be a way of saying I'm significant and worthy of your respect because I achieve a lot of stuff. I'm valuable because I'm busy. So our identity becomes caught up not just in what we do but in how much we do and in demonstrating the results of our hard work. Telling people we're busy can be a form of what we call today virtue signalling. Or busyness can also be used as an excuse for our bad priorities. A common reason for saying no to something is, I'm too busy. When in actual fact, the honest answer is, that thing is just not as important to me as the other things in my life. I'd rather be doing them than doing this thing that you've asked of me. But of course that answer doesn't sound very spiritual or selfless. We we don't want to admit our priorities are shaped more by selfish desires than they should be. So it's easier and more face-saving to give the impression that we're either being very responsible by doing lots of important things or we're somehow a victim of the demands of modern life and it's not our fault that we can't say yes to everything. The reality is we all choose to do what we do, how much we do and how often we do it. And our choices in that are primarily driven by our own desires for what we think is best for ourselves. You could even argue that a slave in the ancient world would obey their master out of selfish desire. That doesn't sound right to us, but think about it. A slave knew that if they disobeyed, they would be beaten. And ultimate disobedience would mean death by crucifixion. So a slave would obey out of self-preservation. A person can only be enslaved effectively because they have within them this drive for self-preservation. Because they know and believe the outcome of obeying is better than the outcome of disobeying. A slave who had lost any will to live would have no motivation to obey because they wouldn't care about the consequences. That's the way we're made. We're we're designed to always do the thing we desire the most. That's, That's why Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So when even sin enslaves us and we find ourselves doing what we know we ought not to do, even when we say we don't want to do it, we're still morally responsible before God for our sin. We've simply acted on our strongest desire in the moment to please ourselves instead of God. So we need to hear the message of Sabbath rest, not just as people living in the 21st century, but as people full stop, as sinners who need saving. So what did Jesus mean when he said, I will give you rest? Do we really believe that promise? And if we do, do we know how it applies to us today as sinners saved by grace in our busy 21st century world? Now, immediately after Jesus says these words about giving rest, Matthew's Gospel records him and his disciples walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath. 
His disciples were hungry and they were plucking heads of grain and rubbing them between their hands and eating them. Now the Pharisees saw them and they criticised Jesus for breaking the Sabbath by allowing them to do work because they were technically harvesting. What did Jesus say to them? He said, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, in a couple of weeks, we'll look in more detail at what Jesus has to say about the Sabbath, but I want to briefly draw our attention to these two things he says here. Firstly, he says there are two ways of viewing the Sabbath command. One is legalistically, according to the letter of the written code, as the Pharisees were, which is to say, man was made for the Sabbath. The other is through the perspective of grace, according to the spirit of the law, which is to say, the Sabbath was made for man. That first view makes the command something that enslaves me. It gives me a list of things to do, or in the case of this command, a list of things I'm not allowed to do. The second view gives me freedom by enabling and empowering me to do things that are good for myself and for others. But Jesus secondly says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now note, he doesn't say Lord over the Sabbath. He's not claiming authority to change or abolish the command. The Sabbath command is the fourth of the Ten Commandments, which is the heart of the moral law. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus' teaching on the Sabbath isn't doing away with the command. For him to be Lord of the Sabbath means that he alone is the one who brings the fulfilment of this command to bear on us. See, if we have Jesus as our Lord, if we come into his kingdom then we'll come to know the full benefits of the Sabbath command because he's not a lord like Pharaoh or Caesar who use their authority to subjugate and enslave, but he's the lord who gives freedom and joy and dignity to his subjects who obey him. Let's hear what Isaiah says. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, meaning uh, stop trampling on it, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honourable. If you honour it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's from Isaiah 58. 13 and 14. See there how there's a direct correspondence between taking delight in the Lord's commands and taking delight in Him. We see that in Jesus. Jesus said, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. His Father's commands aren't burdensome to Him because He loves the Father and takes delight in His commands. And so, He then says to us, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, John 14, 15. So when Jesus described these two ways of viewing the Sabbath, he's contrasting the two ways 
that we might try to relate to him as Lord of the Sabbath. The first, man is made for the Sabbath. Well, that's the legalistic response to God's command from a belief that my justification is accomplished by my obedience. If I simply see the command as a means to earn my justification, then there are three possible ways I'll respond. And as I uh, mention these, you might see one of them as describing you. The first is arrogance. That's where I think I'm perfectly capable of doing what the law says, convinced that I'm essentially a good person. And in that case, I then become blind to my own failures. And I manage to find all kinds of loopholes in the law so I can pass off my partial obedience as if it were full obedience. Or there's despondence. See, I, I try to keep it and I realise after my many failures that I can't but I'm driven by guilt to keep trying but the more I try the more my failure eats away at my sense of assurance and the more I see God's commands as burdensome or thirdly I respond with indifference see after too many failures I decide it's not worth trying because I know I'll never reach God's standard. So I decide that I can work out my goodness myself in my own way. And so I give up on the command. And I then use God's grace as an excuse for my disobedience. Now if any of those describes you in any way, then you need to hear the truth. The gospel of the true Sabbath seen in the second statement The Sabbath is made for man. This is the grace approach to God's command. It comes from believing that my justification is a sheer gift from God apart from anything I do. Because of grace, I know that God's commands are given so I may know how I am to live in and enjoy the freedom of my justification. It doesn't take away from the seriousness of the command or the importance of my obedience But my motivation is out of love, not fear. I want to please my Heavenly Father, not to earn His favour, but to know and enjoy His pleasure in me as His child. The Pharisees saw Jesus and His disciples doing things on the Sabbath which they had said were forbidden. And they interpreted it as Jesus having no regard for the command. In reality, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, Jesus was living in the fullness of the command and he was the true Sabbath keeper. He never did away with the command. He was calling them back to the true intent of it as the law actually taught it. So, let's go there to the law. In the the law, there are two reasons that are given for observing the Sabbath. The first is creational Exodus 28 to 11 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. 
Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Uh, This is the reason really behind Jesus' words, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, that creational aspect. And note he didn't say it was made for the Jews, but for man, for humanity. God set aside the seventh day as a holy day long before the written law, even before Adam and Eve had sinned. We saw in our reading this morning that the first Sabbath keeper was God himself. He didn't rest because he was tired and needed to recover, but as Genesis 2, 2-3 said, because he finished his work he'd done in creation. True rest, true Sabbath, comes as a fruit of finishing a good work. And it's not inactivity. It is actively enjoying that which has been completed. We all know that sense of satisfaction when we've completed a task and done it well, whether it's tidying our garden or cooking a meal or finishing a piece of artwork, putting that final piece in a jigsaw, learning a piece of music off by heart. There's, there's a joy in completing something and completing it well, a pleasure to be found not only in the job coming to an end, but the fact that it's come to an end because it's complete or perfect and nothing further needs to be done. But a curated garden, a good meal, a polished piece of music, they all lead to another kind of activity, the active enjoying of what's been made and and often sharing that enjoyment with others. We know that pleasure because... We're made in the image of God, who declares everything he made as very good. And he didn't leave creation on its own to tick away like a clock. But he continues to uphold and maintain and enjoy every part of his good creation, from the largest galaxy down to the smallest subatomic particle, from a blade of grass and a sparrow right up to his beloved children. Sabbath rest is not about inactivity. God didn't stop doing stuff altogether. He finished his work of creation and he began his joyful work of providence. God's institution of the seventh day Sabbath was an expression of his good rule over creation. And so he commanded humanity to observe it as an expression of our rule over creation under him. This seven-day week is one thing that sets humanity apart from other creatures. No other species on the planet observes a seven-day cycle. Creation has all kinds of inbuilt cycles in it. There's a 24-hour cycle of days as the earth rotates. There's the monthly cycle of the moon as the moon revolves around the earth. There are the annual cycles of the seasons as the earth revolves around the sun. Even the sun itself goes through cycles that impact our planet. And all creatures, human and animal and vegetable, are affected by these creation rhythms. But none of these cycles or rhythms can be divided by seven. The seven-day week isn't inbuilt into nature. It's something that is, in a sense, 
imposed on nature by God and humanity. As humanity multiplied and filled the earth and subdued it and ruled over it, this expression of the image of God in working six days and resting on the seventh was to be the pattern by which we live. A pattern that brings about a new rhythm, not controlled by nature, but by God the Creator who brings a flourishing of humanity and through our flourishing, the flourishing of creation. Now we see this starkly in the curse that came after the man and woman sinned. Adam was told that the ground was now cursed because of him, that it would produce thorns and thistles and he would have to labour and sweat just to be able to eat bread until all of his labour would come to nothing as he himself returned to the dust. Instead of being able to know rest in work that was purposeful and good, he would instead have to work just in order to survive and his labours would never reach a point of completion. He would never be able to say, it's finished, only I'm finished when all that he may have achieved in life is left behind as he enters the grave. Ecclesiastes put it, puts it bluntly, Ecclesiastes 1, 8-9, All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, that sums up our position in the judgment and futility of our sin. Instead of ruling over creation and setting up this Sabbath-shaped rhythm of living, we become like other creatures, just subject to the movements of the sun and the moon and the earth which determine whether we're in light or darkness, warmth or cold, life or death. So instead of ruling creation, we become ruled by it. Our lives become chaotic and restless. Now you might say at this point, hang on, but the world does live in this seven-day cycle. Everyone observes a seven-day week. Just look at our calendar. Well, that's only because of the massive influence that Christianity has had on the world in shaping how we structure our calendars. And it's only really in countries that have had that significant influence that the idea of a day of rest or weekend has been in force. So while the Sabbath tells us something about God's design for humanity on creation, it also tells us something about this fallenness and futility of human humanity in sin, but also what the Lord has done about it. And that's the second reason that the law gives for this command. Deuteronomy 5.15 You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. As slaves in a nation that had no notion of Sabbath or a seven-day week, the Israelites in Egypt would have been forced to work non-stop, seven days a week. There would have been no rest from their labours, except maybe 
there were occasional days that might have been set aside to worship the Egyptian gods. Then the Lord redeemed them from their slavery and promised to bring them into a land of rest where they would be free people. Free not to do their own thing, but to obey the Lord their God. So before he'd even given them the written law at Sinai, the Lord instituted the Sabbath, a regular reminder of the rest from their slave labour that the Lord had given them by bringing them out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So here are the two reasons for obeying the Sabbath command. First, because God has made you. And second, because God has redeemed you. This is why the Sabbath was such an important command. It was one that servants and anyone visiting the land had to observe and even one that oxen, donkeys and livestock had to observe. It was so important that a person who broke it faced the same penalty as murder and rape and idolatry. Exodus 31.14 says, You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. So a Jew who profaned the Sabbath denied these two fundamental truths, that they were a creature, wholly dependent upon and morally responsible to their creator, and that they were a redeemed sinner, called to live by faith in their covenant God. These two truths that the Sabbath communicates come together in the cross of Jesus. When was Jesus crucified? It was on Friday, the sixth day of the week. Moments before he died, he called out, It is finished, before committing his spirit to his Father and giving up his life. His body then was literally laid to rest in the tomb before sunset, because sunset marked the beginning of the Sabbath. Do you see echoes here of Genesis 2? A work completed, followed by rest. This time it it wasn't the work of creation that was finished, but the work of redemption. Jesus had completed the work the Father had sent him to do, and having finished it, he rested. God's wrath had been expended in full. Our sins had been paid for in total. The law had been completely fulfilled. Nothing more is now needed to be done to complete Jesus' work of salvation in which he sets us free from slavery to sin. We can't add to it in any way. We can simply receive it by faith. But that's not where it stops. On the first day of the new week, the tomb was opened. It's not a mere coincidence that we're told that the women who came to the tomb came very early on Sunday morning. Now John's Gospel says in 20 verse 1, while it was still dark. Whereas Mark's Gospel says, when the sun had risen. But that's not a contradiction. They would have left their homes in the dark in order to arrive at the tomb by the time that the sun had risen. Now that echoes Genesis chapter 1, 1 to 5. 
where we read about darkness being over the face of the deep in verse 2. But then God spoke, let there be light. And the darkness was filled with light. So this dawning of Easter Sunday was the dawning of the new creation. One that when complete will be the Sabbath rest of a new heavens and a new earth. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In the original language, the words he is aren't there. It's simply, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. That means that not only am I in Christ a brand new person, but in Christ I am part now of this new creation. We could, if we like, see the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming as parallel to the days of creation in Genesis 1 in which the Father, the Son and the Spirit are at work in the perfect unity of love separating light from darkness putting everything in its rightful place in order to bring everything to its goal of the seventh day of rest in which humanity will be restored to our position of fruitfulness of ruling over all God's creatures with Christ as our husband and our king. Because that's his goal, and because this goal is guaranteed, it means that the Sabbath rest of the new creation isn't just something we look forward to in hope, but it's a reality that works its way back into our presence, so that coming to Jesus now means receiving and knowing the rest that he offers us, a rest from our striving to justify ourselves, a rest from Slavery to the guilt and shame and power of sin. Arrest from slavery to the fear of death. Arrest from our tiring efforts to suppress the truth of God. Arrest from the burden of trying to define our own identity. Come to me, Jesus said, and I will give you rest. Let's hear that command and if we say that we love him, let's obey that command. Come to him and receive the rest that he gives.